All right, so if you turn back to Matthew 4, chapter 4, verse 1 through 11, we continue in our Christology series, or the study of Jesus Christ, and we're going to be looking at the temptation of Jesus. And uh, the temptation of Jesus in chapter um, 4, verse 1 through 11 is important because for us, well, last week we talked about the pre-existence of Christ. That kind of emphasizes his deity. There are some who believe that we have pre-existed as babies and then we came to this world. We did not exist before. Each of us came about biologically through um, our parents. But yet the temptation of Jesus reminds us that we're human because we are tempted. And there are certain things that we're tempted by. Oftentimes it's associated, oh, you know, you know tempting dessert. Don't tempt me with that. Or tempt me with this. We think of it in a moral um, regards. But the temptation of Jesus, it emphasizes both his humanity and his deity, as we'll see. But we can relate to it because it mentions his humanity. And as we understand that Jesus had two natures, a human nature and also understanding a divine nature. And his divine nature was first. But just in regards to temptation, got a couple of things on the next slide here as we look at. Lead us not into temptation. Oh, who am I kidding? Follow me. I know a shortcut. Or if you're a male or if you like to drive, you can, you'll recognize the one on the right. You know, it says, oh, I'm so tempted. If you've ever seen that head of vehicle, it's like, oh, would love to go up on, try to make it up on that ramp. That's why men's insurance is higher than women's. But to understand that. But this morning, as we look at it, we're going to look at three questions regarding the temptation of Jesus. Because when it comes to the temptation of Jesus, there are often questions that we have. So as we go through and look in chapter 4, verse 1 through 11, we understand here, in looking at the temptation, there are three areas that Jesus was tempted in. And so as we look at this study and the questions, first of all, the questions that we ask, and you may not ask, you may understand what this is, but number one, is Jesus impeccable? And the word impeccable, now it kind of means all flawless, or we have the original meaning in Latin in the 16th century, it came about was impeccable, im meaning not, and pec um, in Latin means to sin. And so the question here is not asking if Jesus was sinless, because some mean, okay, was Jesus sinless? And most would believe that Jesus was without sin. We're not asking if Jesus took a test and passed it without failing or missing a question. Was he um, sinless on earth? Most would agree that he was, even understanding. That's part of, of his nature going through. But the question here is more important because the question is, was Jesus able to sin? Because there's some who would believe, well, Jesus could have sinned, but he didn't. And the question is not if Jesus was able to overcome temptation, but was he unable to be overcome by it? And there's a difference in looking at that. First of all, Jesus took a test, and was he only able to get a perfect grade? Was there a possibility of him making an error? And if you believe that he did, that affects who he was. Because if we look at the person of Jesus Christ, divine with two natures, a human nature and a divine nature, the divine nature was the priority because that was his first nature. 
And so let me just give it to you a different way. And the next slide, we look at some theological views. The incorrect theological view is that Jesus was, not, was able not to sin. And the inference is that Jesus could have sinned, but he chose not to. He was, not able, he was able not to sin. And it, as we think of it is, um, if we look at it, okay, you know, could you, there's some who think, okay, could you sin, could you not sin for one minute? Well, maybe, you know, if you not have a bad thought, and then you could two minutes. But really, there's different variables. But we often look at it, there are those theologians who look at Jesus, okay, was he able not to sin? Was he able not to sin? So he was able to live in his humanity a perfect life. But the correct view is Jesus was not able to sin because he was God. And it makes a big difference in your view because it affects your position and view of Jesus Christ. He is deity and God, and he's only as perfect as his greatest nature. Because possessing two natures, and I'll be honest, understanding the nature, his human nature, and his divine nature is a little challenging for us. Why is it challenging for us? Let me ask you this. We'll just posit this question. Why is it challenging for us? Because <laughs> we're not divine. Absolutely. Last I saw, you know, maybe, you know, you're, you've thought, oh, you know, my wife thinks, thinks I'm a God because she keeps on offering me burnt offerings, you know, at dinner time. But that's not right, okay? Understanding we are not divine. But we have a human nature so we can relate to that. So understanding that, but what does that mean? Does that mean that, and sometimes we question if God, is, if God is like us, you know, was he able to sin? Did he feel this? There are certain things that he was able to experience. He grew in stature and wisdom and knowledge. But what does that reflect? He still has the scars. But understanding when it comes to his, his position of sin, that he was without sin. He was perfect as his greatest nature was deity, and he possessed two natures and in power understanding or could his deity protect the human nature from failing and yes it could and it could not um, it it would protect it but also it leads us to another question because understanding is okay so if he had a divine nature and a sinful nature the two natures in there and the primary nature is deity, and the secondarily took upon himself a human nature. Impeccability, or obviously not able to sin, is based upon his union of deity, of his union of the divine nature and his human nature. Because obviously, as we look at the foreshadowing, he was not able to sin. And it's important theologically because Jesus must exhibit and fulfill all the attributes and characteristics of deity. His essence or the characteristics that he is unable to give up dictates that you cannot contradict what defines you as God. One of the major characteristics of God is that God is holy. Holy means perfect but separate from sin. He is without sin. He cannot sin. And that is essential to maintaining who he is and understanding. Now you might say, wait a second, God is also um, omnipotent. God is also able to be everywhere at one time. So how does that happen? Well, as we learn in Philippians 2, what's called kenosis, he gave up the use of some of his divine attributes some of the time. Didn't mean that he stopped being who he claimed to be, and that is God. And so that's difficult for us to ultimately comprehend, but it doesn't necessarily negate the validity of it. 
So let's look at the second thing. First of all, was Jesus able to be tempted? Because it leads us, well, if he was divine and if he was uh, human nature, was he even able to be tempted? You know, I'm tempted all the time. And so you wonder, so understanding that, what about this divine nature? And the answer would be yes. As we look at even the verses, and we'll see other verses as well, it says, first of all, when Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, and when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights afterward, he was hungry. To me, that is just the understatement of the, of the world, you know? He fasted 40 days. Obviously, he had drinks because to fluids, but to be without food for 40 days and 40 nights. First, you have to be in pretty good shape to do that, but I mean, we, have tr- we would have trouble with four days and four nights without eating. But 40 days and 40 nights, and then it says he was hungry. I mean, we'd be weak and famished. But it simply says he was hungry. Now when the tempter came to him, he says, and then he is tempted when he's at the weakest point, both physically and emotionally. And that's hard. And the key to remember is that Jesus did have a human nature. While the divine nature could not be separate from the human nature, it could allow the human nature to be prominent. And you see the emphasis here. He's hungry. He's been fasting. And an example, understanding of that Jesus in his human nature did not know the will of the Father. Jesus could not sin, but he also did not know what he would face or the, human con- or the consequences of those testings, as we think about it. Even praying in the garden, he knew that he was going to be crucified, but he also withheld some of his omniscience. He didn't know what would t- always what would take place. He had to trust God the Father. And so, but it could allow the human nature to be tempted. See, Jesus was able to be tempted, and the temptation of Jesus focused upon his human nature. So that's a question that as we look at. But also the third question, I would say, is what was the purpose of the temptation? You know, what was the purpose of the temptation? You know, if we were playing God or if we were in control, we'd be like, oh, you know what, there's so-and-so. Let's push this button and see how they respond because we don't know. But we aren't God. We like to play that sometimes and put people in uncomfortable and challenging situations. But the purpose of the temptation was to distract and divert Jesus from God's plan. Because God came to earth and there was a plan. And here, the purpose of the temptation for Satan, as we look at perspectives, because in Satan's perspective, it was to distract and divert Jesus from God's plan. And some might say, well, did Jesus know that he would pass? I believe he probably did because he was trusting in God the Father. But, it, but also, from a human standpoint, we can relate to the temptation of Jesus Christ. First of all, Satan's desire for individuals is to sin and turn away from God. You know, his methods usually include attacking our pride, our doubt, deceit. Look at Genesis 3. And Satan did not want Jesus to fulfill the work of the Father or complete the plan of salvation for mankind. See, it's a specific reminder to us of the vulnerability of the spiritual, of the humanity and weaknesses of humanity. Because sometimes, humanly speaking, we think that we, we are always building ourselves up. You know, we, you have a lot of talents and abilities. Each of us have uh, different gifts. But yet, you know, we are perfect. We have weaknesses, we have failures, and we mess up. And while it's easy to hide that, it's also a reminder that we need to trust Christ. 
And it's a specific reminder of that vulnerability of the spiritual attack that can lead us away from God. Jesus had been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. You know, and understanding the food fast. But the testing, even as we look at it, is a parallel of the testing that took place to the nation of Israel in the wilderness. What did they always long for? And I, Oh, if I had the cucumbers, if I had the vegetables that were back in Egypt. But as we look at this um, understanding, there are three questions that Satan uses to tempt us, you know, and to doubt his identity as God. To doubt Satan uses to tempt Jesus to question and doubt Jesus' identity as God. So it's really even an attack understanding that he is deity. wanting him to only confide in his humanity. Because if you think about the questions, if you look in the text, and it says, verse 3, Now when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. And then in verse 6 it says, And he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. And again, the devil took him up and says, All these things I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. Trying to divert Jesus from the plan that God the Father had for him. First of all, in verse 3, it says, Command or turn these stones into bread. His response is, Jesus' response is to go to Deuteronomy 8.3. Man shall not live by bread alone. You know, as we think about the physical, and to understand it is important because here, he gives Jesus' response by giving the word of God, but this was an attack, and really the word temptation means to provoke to do wrong. But it is trying to test the obedience of Jesus Christ. Would he obey and trust in God the Father, or would he do his own will? The second thing we see in verse 6 is to, Satan says, throw yourself down for God the Father will protect you. He will give his angels charge over you. And here is the misquotation, if you will, of Psalm 91, 11, and 12. And Jesus' response is, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. And again, he goes from Deuteronomy 6, 16. And in the King James, I think it uses the word Massah which literally refers to testing, and it's from Exodus uh, 1, or excuse me, Exodus 17, 1 through 7, when Israel demanded water from Moses in the wilderness. says, give us this. You know, we want it. And what does Moses say? You know, oh, man, you are such a disobedient people. Why don't you trust God? And the, the way the whole attitude is, give us this. Kind of show us a miracle. Give us what we want. And... It was an, an issue of trust that Satan brings here. And then in verse 9, it says, All these things I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. And Jesus responds in saying in Deuteronomy 6.13, Go away and get behind me. Go away or get behind me, literally. And this is referring to idolatry. What is, where are, um, where are you placing your faith in? And Satan uses the same techniques of temptation with believers as we think about it. Let me just read this again as we go through. Uh, just to give you that text, it says, but he, starting in verse 4, 
Or let me start with verse 3. It says, Now when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you. And in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, It is written again, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Again the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. As we think about the temptation of Jesus, Satan uses the same techniques of temptation with believers as well. And that's where we can relate to. First of all, Satan instigates doubt in our identity as believers and uses our physical weaknesses to question our position as believers when we sin. See, Satan often, as we think about temptation, it doesn't necessarily always occur when everything, well, it can occur when everything is going well, but when you're spiritually strong, when you're reading the Bible, then something comes into our lives, and there's a doubt. Okay, why did this happen? What occurred? But the doubt is placed in what is God doing? If Jesus really loved me, would he allow this to happen to me physically? It starts to question our minds. As Satan said here, if you really are the Son of God, if God really loved you, if you're a Christian, you know, would this really happen? And the challenge is for us as believers is if we are going to choose to obey him in spite of our circumstances or if we're going to try to follow our own path. Because humanly speaking, we try to fix the problem. We try to divert. And we think, oh, you know, is this right? Is this really what God wants? We question. You know, that's why, you know, it's like we talk about that little voice in our head. And there's some who pictured, oh, here's the good angel, the bad angel. Are you going to give in temptation or not? That's not how it works. You don't have any little good, bad angel. But to understand is that it is an act of obedience to follow after what the Word of God says. That's why we always question. Why? How? It's within our nature to question, what is God doing in my life? Why? But then do we obey? And that's an act of the will. Because here we see what Satan is doing is trying to produce that doubt. And here Jesus responds and says, Every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Turn these stones to bread. You know, you're in a state of weakness. You know, just do this. Act upon this. Are you going to provide for yourself or are you going to have God provide? That's the hard part. Because here, when we are confronted with that act, it takes an act of the will to obey God when our circumstances dictate otherwise. But also, we test God in many ways. See, Satan wants us to bargain and ask God, if you love me, you will give me what I want just this once. See, I don't like these circumstances. Are you sure you know what you're doing? Life is too hard. And that's where we insert complaining, whining, etc. You know, I need more money Better job, bigger church, more time, and then I can serve you. This is a trust. See, as a believer, faith is a crucial element to 
our salvation. Because it isn't just believing. And as we understand, even our, to place our faith in Jesus Christ, it is understanding that Jesus Christ, he is worthy, an object worthy of our trust. Do we believe that he did what he said he did? Do we believe that he will do what he promised? Because that's why people don't say, well, I don't need to trust God because, you know, I don't know who God is. I don't know who Jesus is. They're just human. But to understand that Jesus is God, that Jesus did what he said he did, and even in this temptation of, by Satan, says here, go ahead, throw yourself down. Don't worry, God is going to intervene and provide. Let me ask you this. If Jesus had done that, would God have intervened and provided for him? At least so, yes, because part of it, but it would have invoked, even as we think about a miraculous event. And so that's how we are sometimes. We want to provoke God. Oh, come on, God. Um, if you cause this miracle to occur, then I'll believe in you, or you know, I'll have more faith and strength in you. That's what people want. Show me a miracle, and I'll believe in you. Have you ever heard that before? But God doesn't always work in the miraculous. God can work in the miraculous, and he's already done the miraculous, if you think about it. And so we also have to believe that God will work in the day-to-day. And this is a temptation for us to, te- to test God. We want God, uh, we test God through sometimes our actions and our questions. God, if you do this for me, then I'll live for you. Or if you do this, it's that bargaining. Sometimes we look at it as, oh, you know, it's the fleece test. If you do this, then I'll do that. But what the danger is we put a conditional response on it. God, if you provide in this way, then I'll follow after you. Often referred to in the military as the foxhole prayer. And it's not a bargaining. God does not change. We're the ones who have to trust him in all circumstances. God is not like this, this bargaining tool we have. Okay, God, you know, if you do this in this situation, you know, I know that I can really serve you in a better way. If you give me um, this blessing, then I know that, uh, you know, I can use it for the poor or help so-and-so down the street. And that's a danger because that is not, that is a temptation that we have, humanly speaking. If you just do this once, we need to not test God. And it is an issue of trust, but also trust to believe that he will do what he promised, faithfully provide, but also, God knows what he's doing because he is God. And then as we look at the third thing, understanding the idols in our lives. Satan uses idols in our lives to distract us from completely committing our worship to Jesus. Worship is kind of underrated. When we think of worship, we think, oh, you know, we're worshiping. How do we worship? We worship physically. You know, we worship in this way. Um, uh, we worship and we only listen to music. Well, worship is really the recognition, the adoration of God. Well, corporately, it is an essential element of the local church. You can worship at home. You can worship as you sing. You can worship as you serve. We worship through the offering, through the reading of the word, through prayer. It is a part of worship because we are adoring, recognizing, God, you are God, and we are not. And we're placing an emphasis and a, and a priority on that. So whether it be in our finances, you know, God, understand this is yours. Whether it be at our job, you can worship God because, God, I'm going to try to live for you. And the challenge is our personal preferences and desires kind of mix with our theology. 
well, I would like this and that. And sometimes the challenge is committing it to the Lord. Maybe there are things that you would like. I know someone who is, works on Sundays and he'd like to come to church. And so, but committing that to the Lord, understanding if God is in control, what is my response? Pray. You know, but for right now, he has that. I mean, when I worked in the operating room, there were times when I had to work on Sundays. And I remember back at that time, you always shouldn't work at Sundays. You shouldn't work in this place. But does that mean that, you know, people who do that aren't spiritual? Not necessarily, but if that's your priority, if you choose to work on Sundays because of the financial incentives, there might be issues. But really, it's an understanding priorities in your worship and adoration. While corporate worship is an important part of a believer, even as it talks about Hebrews 11.25, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. And as we went through COVID and understanding the importance of fellowshipping, one with another, worshiping, each of us are different, but yet you also provide and contribute to the worship. Yes, even babies, they, they can worship the Lord because, you know, voice is crying out, and we're glad to have each one here. But to understand that worship has to be a priority in our lives, and what that means is recognizing that God is at work in our lives. But how do we worship at home with our families? How do we help each one contribute and understand to, to honor God in our lives when things aren't going right? To commit to praying and, lo- and the testimony that each of us have to lead our families, but also to be submissive, sometimes to, whether it be to others as well in the family or to an uh, employer to be a testimony for Christ, and it requires humility on our part. But it also means that, as we understand, there are idols that take our time away. And these idols in our lives, because if I were to ask you to make a list, where does your relationship with Jesus Christ fall on that list? You know, what are your priorities in life? So you would evaluate how much of your time, money, and talent, emotions do you spend on your body, your health, your looks, food, clothing, sleep, your studies, your work, your family, your friends, your free time. Because those can all be idols in our lives, our possessions. They can all be idols, and it's not wrong to have those things, but what often happens is those we don't necessarily commit to God. And what I mean by that is just saying, you know, utilizing those things if we place a greater priority on those, God can take those away or really affect, have a, a negative consequence in our life. And I don't use the illustration often, but I, I, um, I can relate sometimes to a, uh, our oldest son. When he was born, he was born with a, an issue. They thought he had Hirschsprung disease. But I always wondered, you know, as far as things that you care about and love and life and, and then understanding that committed to God. Our children, you know, are committed to God. We have them for a period of time. They'll say, oh, you know, a child isn't supposed to pass away before their parents. But that happens. And when it occurs, we need to understand that while our lives are temporary, everything that we have, we are stewards with, including our family, our friends, our possessions. And when we love something to a greater degree than God, God may take those away or God may use that as an opportunity for us to honor him. And we need to understand that there should be no greater item of worship in our lives than God. As I go back to Job, 
The Lord giveth, the Lord taketh. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It takes a deep personal relationship with Jesus Christ to understand that statement, especially in that context. When you've faced a serious loss of all your possessions, your children, your physical health, and then say, blessed be the name of the Lord, a statement of praise, that's often not on our minds when bad things happen to us. But it's also the crux of why do bad things happen to good people? And to understand that Jesus is God and that he has, he knows what is going on and he has the position to do what he wants to do. But yet, why does God allow anything good to happen to anyone? So often we think about the bad things, but understanding that what we call bad isn't, is only from our perspective. So as we see and understand here in regards to the temptation of Jesus Christ. And even looking down at that, it says in verse 11, Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. In his humanity, he was affected. And the angels came and ministered to him. How? We don't know. Providing for him. It wasn't in his deity, but we understand and see here. And I would give you a challenge you know, as we understand, even growing in our relationship with Christ, the time we spent. Because the challenge is, if, we were to th- if you've never had a personal devotions or a walk with Christ, you know, even taking the time to pray uninterrupted for five minutes. You know, read your Bible for 15 minutes, and then meditate and reflect upon the scripture, ministry, or maybe people, or what God is doing in your life for 10 minutes, and half an hour each day. And you think, well, that's hard, you know, come up with a plan. It's, it's a simple plan. Sometimes people use things like daily bread and others. But a personal challenge, and then attend church each week and serve. But the commitment to be faithful to God, and then also not just read, but to reflect upon that. Because what often happens is we look at it, if you're a task-driven person, you know, you just, oh, I'm done, I got it. Now, that's why I like, I'll read online through my phone and it's the days and you can check it off and it's really nice and then you think you're done. And then it's like, okay, I got to start a different program. But to meditate and reflect upon what God has done, it's an important part because as we allow him to take control, as we think about Jesus Christ, it's really developing a perspective. It's not what, what Jesus, you know, sometimes it used to be, what would Jesus do? The hard part is we're not Jesus. But what would be the right response in this situation? How do we glorify God in this situation? What would be the, and part of it, it means is reflecting upon what Jesus is doing in every situation. Because humanly speaking, we react very emotionally. We re- respond, we're emotional beings. You know, there's some of you I probably could put up old yeller and, you know, oh, no, I don't want to see that. You know, it has a sad ending. Going to make you cry. Some of you are like, it's only a dog, right? You know, if it were a cat, you know, no big deal, right? But understanding is, you know, we're emotional beings. Some, we've been seared, you know, we've been kind of seared with a hot iron. And literally, our emotions, we try to keep them inside because we don't want to allow other people to see our emotions. My whole point is that understanding is that when we are sensitive to the Holy Spirit's leading in our life, 
it'll help us to understand that God is working through our lives and that worship. We will allow him to, to be able to be worshiped and adored and we can thank him and praise him. And just thanking and praising him. Let me just take a moment before I give conclusion here is, as I think about what is, you know, and I don't always do this, but what is a praise if you were to say, you know, thank God for this in my life? What is something that you would say? What's that? Health. It's okay. This is not a, um, you know, this is a question where you can actually respond to. I know. Salvation. Did you say Stan or? Okay, you're thankful for Stan. You know, praise the Lord for people in our lives. What else? For your mate, spouse, husband and wife. What else? Our right minds. Yes. If you think about that, if you've known people with different conditions. Living in America. New babies. You know, and going on, and I don't want to cut it down, but understanding is that we need to have a mentality of praise. And part of it, we use it through thanking God, but praising God because you are this. God, you have done this. Praise God that we live here. You know, praise God for this. Praise God for that. And using that vernacular or terminology helps us to recognize that, God, you've done this. Sometimes we just say, you know, thank you, but be specific. Thank you, God, for this. Thank you for salvation. And as we reflect upon salvation, you know, think about this. We are not as sinful as we could be. Now, I bet each of you, you would be good sinners. We're all good sinners, but, you know, we could be worse sinners. Trust me, I mean, there's things that we've done in the past, devious, you know, some of you I know, you know. But the whole point is that God has allowed us to honor him. It's, it's not that we're any better than any other person. There's people that are more moral than we are. There's people who pray constantly and, you know, do things, but yet they have deviated from the truth who Jesus Christ is. But thank the Lord that he can use us in spite of our weaknesses. And the temptation of Jesus Christ reminds us that, guess what, we can be forgiven. So as we look at this in conclusion, understanding Jesus was tempted but never sinned. So go to the next slide. He had no sin and guilt. He is the perfect and holy God, yet was without sin. Let me just read two verses, Hebrews 2, 18, and Hebrews 4, 15. Hebrews 2, 18 says, For in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he was able to aid those who are tempted. And Hebrews 4, 15 states and says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we were, yet without sin. Second thing we can understand is that we sin and possess guilt and we need help and forgiveness from Jesus. You know, every time we mess up, did you know that Jesus forgives our sin? He's forgiven us and he wants us to confess that sin so that we can come back into a right relationship with him. That's the hard part is because we're the ones who keep messing up and Jesus keeps forgiving us. And sometimes we look at others like, you know, would we forgive ourselves? Sometimes we don't, and that's the challenge, to trust God to forgive our sins. But also, repentance, that change of behavior. Don't keep messing up the same thing, because otherwise there's something wrong. Jesus has the power to help and overcome. Thirdly, our temptations remind us of the importance of knowing Scripture, the Bible, for our defense against sin 
and growing in our relationship with Him. So go to the next slide, understanding that, growing in our relationship with Him. See, know Scripture, meditate upon it, learn it, even have a verse. I know that some of you are like, oh, you know, a favorite verse. But read the Word of God and come up with some verses. You know, there are verses that really, you know, if I were to say Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, many of you know. Trust the Lord with all your heart. Lead not to your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him. He will direct your paths. There are certain verses that are meaningful to us. And if you say, oh, I can't memorize it, write it down. And put in a little card for a week and put it on your refrigerator. Okay, you don't know it, but you have it around you. Put scripture around you. I remember back in the early 80s, 70s, yes, I am that old, um, and I know that some of you under, remember that. They used to have these little plaques in the homes, wooden frame, and they'd have scripture on them. And they'd be all throughout the house. Does anyone remember that? Or is it some of you? Maybe it's just the thing back east they used to do. But they would have these scriptures. And to have scripture in your home. Because it's a reminder for us. Put it places. And then finally, number four, Jesus can help us have victory over our temptations. And what a wonderful promise that is. Jesus can help us have victory over our temptations. Hebrews 4.16, and I'll close with this. Hebrews 4.16 states and says, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Do you recognize when you do have a need? Humbly speaking, you know, it's okay to have, to ask for help or to be in need because really we can have victory over our temptations and victory in life. Victory doesn't mean just uh, getting more than the other person. Victory over sin, victory over even yourself, your own conscience. But victory in knowing that Satan tempts us and wants us to fail. Jesus, in his testing, has given us all the resources we need to succeed in life and to come through the temptation. And sometimes that means that when we fail, part of that means responding to that failure in a biblical and God-honoring way. So to understand here this morning that Jesus can help us to have victory, which looks very differently in different circumstances. But Jesus was tempted, but yet without sin. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for... Thank you.